OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Well, just like we like to do, man, we like to jump right into things, Chad. So thank you very much for uh, joining us today at Ask an Angel. And to get started, we're going to jump right into your background. So maybe you can share a little bit about your past, kind of where you've been, where you're going, and one thing about you that no one would know. Oh, that's a good one. So, um, okay, I guess I have a bit of uh, interesting way into the you know technology ecosystem and venture capital angel investing space. So I, um, I'm Canadian from Calgary. I left uh, Canada about 12 years ago, moved um, overseas and got a law degree. And then um, basically looked for an emerging market that I could go to and basically learn venture at the ground up. And so I ended up in the Middle East in Dubai, where I spent uh, seven years first as a lawyer. Um, And then about four years ago, I kind of figured out that selling six minute time intervals wasn't a very good um, business model and that I didn't actually want to you know, go in and operate uh, a, a company. And so I, I left practicing law. I took kind of all my relationships on the company side and on the investor side and started uh, angel investing and putting together syndicates. Um, because I was a lawyer, I, I kind of got access to two things. One, um, good early stage companies came to me and wanted support advice. And the kind of angel investor community or family offices basically said, okay, I had good deal flow and I knew how to put together, you know, the transactions and put together, you know, SPVs and ways to invest. And so just started doing that and um, been doing that kind of the last four years and invest only in early stage fintech companies. And I guess the, Something nobody really knows a good is that uh, during COVID, I guess my wife and I have been in four different countries, so we've probably traveled more than uh, more than most people. But I think a lot of the people that I do business with still think I'm sitting in Dubai, so they're going to find out today that uh, I'm not actually there. You should change the background then. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. We can let the cat out of the bag, as they as they say. Well, only because I have to ask, when you were going through these four countries, did they every country have a different policy or did you have to uh, quarantine for 14 days in every different country? So I we started in um, Dubai and then we left and we went to Europe in about August last year. So we spent a couple of months in, in Greece for the end of the summer. Um, and then we went to Lebanon for Christmas to visit family. And then we came to Canada. And fortunately, when we came to Canada, it was it was nice because we uh, um, we came in on the pilot program. So we didn't do the 14 day pro the 14 day quarantine. We had three days just with lots of tests. So I think over that Christmas period, we tested something like nine times in in two weeks. So. We were we we knew we were safe while everybody else was still running around wondering. So. Wow, that's a lot of testing. I had no idea it was that uh, strenuous. Oh, we just had to test before and after every country, so not too bad. Oh, okay. Well, that's awesome. Well, I want to touch back on kind of this pivotal moment where you went through, became 
uh, a lawyer, then you started to work through this and you decided this isn't working for me. I need to get into more of this venture capital side. What was that changing moment? You mentioned it was you just didn't like the six minute calls or the six minute value, but you're still utilizing that skill that you built. So what kind of was that metamorphosis that kind of changed and you said, you know what, I really think this is a space I want to be in. Was it a startup that just blew your mind or was it just the whole space that you'd been in for the last uh, better part, I guess, of the last 10 years? Well, I, I, so I've always kind of been in the venture space. And when I started looking at business models and, and things like that, I, I figured out that I didn't love the business of law. So that was the, the first step, right? And then I guess when you start looking at that, the business of, you know, being a lawyer, my, my options were two, twofold. One, I can either try and change that or I can leave the, the profession. And so what I first did was I took all my clients quit uh, working at a big firm and set out on, on my own. And what I figured out very quickly there is that I was effectively picking my clients as if they were an investment, right? Because I was a, a solo uh, lawyer and I had limited amount of time. I didn't want to build a big platform. Very similar to what I do today as an angel investor is I had to pick the clients that I wanted to spend my time with. So I was effectively making that same investment. And then over time, you know, I kind of got to the point where I was like, okay, I'm the only one that doesn't own shares in these same companies that I'm putting, you know, doing these deals for, and I'm helping them and I'm, you know, building value. And so I said initially, okay, I'm going to start writing, you know, small checks. So it's like, you know, what I first started doing was small checks, you know, five, 10, thousand dollars maximum but then i would also do some sweat equity so i'd give them you know another 15 or twenty thousand dollars worth of services and it it went well then as that kind of grew and the number of companies grew i had you know a decision to make one was you can't really scale that and so you know i needed to um make a decision if i wanted to do you know more a larger portfolio or if i wanted to stay concentrated and then the other thing was, is that I was kind of spreading myself too thin. So I wasn't able to give the same best advice. So what I figured out was the companies that I like to invest in, they still can come to me for that, you know, quick advice. I can still be very hands-on, but when we need, you know, heavy lifting on a legal, you know, on a investment round or, you know, heavy lifting on contracts, it's still probably a better use of everybody's time and money to go and hire you know, a law firm to do it. And so that's effectively what I do now. It's, I get access to really good early stage founders because I can actually add some value. And then I help them, you know, in that seed to series A to one, manage their legal spend to raise capital make sure everything's kind of set up right. And I sit on the cap table and build some value and uh, go from there. So that's kind of where we are today. Awesome. No, that's a that's a great story and a great way to to jump into companies. So while you've been working in these companies, what kind of things do you see as uh, being things that would stand out that you kind of can red flag for founders and say, hey, you know, here's some real hot items that you should think about when you're building a company that maybe uh, people just overlook because they're new. I think um, you know what I've figured out over time is you know, especially in early stage companies, it always comes down to the, the people, right? So, and whether that's, 
employees, whether that's co-founders, whether that's, you know, your early stage investors, whether that's the advisors you bring on board, making sure that all those kind of relationships are really sound and, you know, really tight is super important. I can't, you know, stress that enough where you've seen co-founders having, you know, an issue and breaking up and, you know, causing the company to implode where, you know, they pick the wrong early, you know, even pick the wrong angel investors or don't have that structured properly, which, you know, then a VC comes in and says, okay, this is a mess and, you know, you can't really fix it. Same thing with advisors, you know, giving them too many shares, not doing vesting. So making sure that all those relationships are, are really tight at the beginning, I think is something um, that is super important to me and something that I try and help, uh, you know, a lot of early stage companies get right from the beginning. And I always told the companies when I was a lawyer, I said, okay, it, it pays to, you know, take this seriously now, because if you go, if you come to me, you know, three, a year down the line, I'm going to end up charging you three times as much, or it's going to be three times as painful, um, to, to do that. And so that, that's kind of the biggest thing is have those relationships tight at the beginning. Agreed. And and I'm sure that you've seen this many of times and founders go through this quite often where they have to try to restructure and fix a lot of the documentation that they didn't create. Is there, again, some recommendations on here's three things from shareholders agreements, uh, employee agreements, like are the things that you just see that stand out? And I'm, I'm hitting your legal side because yeah, no, it's... Uh, this is not a common uh Common understanding, I think, that a lot of startups uh, don't get, and I think uh, uh, utilizing your skill is uh, is pretty key to this. I think the biggest thing is just to to do it right. A lot of founders try and push it down the the road too far because they think it's going to be expensive. Now, the there's so many um, you know free or low cost places that you can get standard documents, and you know it's always a good place to start. And what I always tell founders is it's better to have something than, than nothing. Even if it's, you know, with your co-founders, when you sit down, when you go, you know, even the back of the napkin conversation where it's like, okay, here's, you know, your step, here's your role. Here's my role. This is, you know, we're full-time or we're not. Um, we agree that we're going to vest our shares, which is something that I like to use with, with everybody, whether that's, you know, founders, um, advisors, early employees, so that if they do end up leaving or you have a, you know, disagreement that an early um, person doesn't, can't hold up the company, or at least if the, they vested, they lose voting rights if they're not part of the, the company. So the biggest advice is always just get it on paper. It doesn't have to be perfect. Contracts are always, you know, a working, um, document they're a living document they can be changed over time there's standards in you know every country of incorporation where there's you know whether it's with certain associations doing it some law firms offer it there's a ton of free and resources on the internet and um, there's no reason not to have it done for the for the vesting part and i, and I do think this is important especially if you're going in as a co-founder do you look at do you like one co-founders in a business or multiple co-founders? And then the follow-up to that is when you vest shares, maybe you can explain more of what vesting shares means. Yeah. So I'm of 
the opinion that I'm actually quite okay with uh, with solo co-founders. A lot of VCs and you know investors will say they don't love solo founders, but I've found a lot of the time that there's more of a risk at the beginning of you know founders that don't have a deep understanding of how to do business with each other that there's actually more of a risk than just having you know a solo person i think i've seen more times where co-founders end up you know having a disagreement at some point that that causes problems over a solo person that kind of has too too much control now obviously with a solo person you're um your biggest risk is making sure they know how to delegate and that they can, you know, bring in the top tier talent. But I've never kind of had um, a situation where I've said, no, I won't invest in a solo founder. I actually, if I look at some of um, the companies that, you know, I've invested in or some that I've missed with solo founders, I've never seen it be a really, really big issue. Um, so I'm, I'm quite comfortable either way, as long as, you know, I really dig into, I probably dig into multiple co-founders more and how do they know each other and, you know, are their skills complementary and, you know, really do due diligence around them more than if it's just a solo, because I know with a solo that we can build up that kind of the C-suite, the advisory board, the, the VP level so that. As long as I know that they can delegate and they have, you know, a few core skills, then I, it's quite comfortable for me. And then um, to the second point on vesting, basically, you know, for anybody that doesn't know what vesting is, it's, it's the ability to either earn shares or claw back shares, depending on how you structure it at certain either time intervals or at um, certain, you know, performance intervals. And so, there's a lot of standards that, you know, you get in the industry where it's, okay, Chad, you're going to join um, XYZ company, you're going to get 1% of the shares, and they're going to vest over a four-year period. So what that means, and usually it's after the first year, there's a one-year period to make sure that everybody likes each other. And then from there, you get a certain amount of shares um, on, you know, a monthly basis, or sometimes... Um, people do it where they get it on performance. So if you look at, you know, even in, up to public companies like, you know, Tesla, Elon gets basically shares every time he hits certain valuations and certain, you know, targets, right? And so there's there's a lot of different incentives you can do with shares. But what I never, you know, like to do is to give um, something away that isn't kind of earned. And it's it's... I think in how you incentivize your company is probably the most important thing to one hiring, getting the right people and to um, the long-term success, right? It's another one of those things. Like I said, the relationships are so important that can, you know, make or break a, a company. I love it. So now you, you and we're going to talk more of this because I think this is really valuable. And I think there's a lot of people that, um, overlook this until it hits them in the face. And then they decide, why do I got to spend 20, 30 grand to fix all this? And it, it really does uh, come quickly. So now you, you kind of have this vesting period. This is an option. What if I'm a founder and I work on this product and idea with a co-founder and we did this all together? Do you recommend going in 50-50 into this business? Or do you recommend that one has 49% and the other one has 51 what is the best way to manage this? Because this is quite common and I'm curious as to what you, what you recommend. 
So I usually, there, there's no right or wrong answer to this. I think there's a lot of factors that, that play into it. Um, usually what I do when we sit down is you kind of sit down and look at who's bringing what to the table, right? So a good way to look at it is, okay, first things first, who's, you know, coming in and doing the, um, you know, ideation, whose idea is it that's has some value that has some intellectual property. The second thing I always look at is how much time, how much sweat are you going to go and put into the, the company? And that's usually the first thing. Now, a lot of the time I always say um, it's better to start off on like a partnership f- foot. And so that usually I'd say is where you kind of end up at 50, 50. Now, if I'm going to come in as, you know, one founder and I've got some money to put behind the company and the other founder doesn't, I would almost treat that as if it was, you know, an initial investment into the company. So that would be the first kind of capital that came in. And that's where, you know, that would skew um, the ownership percentage. So anytime someone comes and puts, you know, capital in, I I consider it a separate um, investment event. And that usually kind of gets um, everybody sorted out. And, and that's also where vesting comes in and is important because as founders, we should be investing as well. So if we get six months down the track and, you know, all of a sudden I choose that I'm not going to work full time. Well, there's a, you know, I, we can, I don't have all my shares yet. And so we can, sit down and figure out a a new kind of conversation around how that works. But I think when I speak to most founders and I can't ever say to, I've been in this conversation, I've never had to make this decision for myself. What I've always seen is founders that start on an equal level will always go to bat for each other. You know, as far as the company comes, I've seen where founders have, you know, maybe they come in at a different time or they don't start it at the, so one founder starts it and then another founder comes in later that, you know, is always going to end up very skewed and, you know, doesn't have a true founder relationship, but I've always found the best founders are the ones that own it equally. And then if one of them's put some capital in, then they, they up, you know, then it goes up because at the end of the day, they're partners, right? And so if one partner has slightly more shares than they, it's not a true partnership. And I, I find the best founder relationships are, you know, partnership-based. Now that's super valuable. And now when you put together the shareholders agreement and you're balancing between the two, because as you mentioned earlier, there are founders that do break up uh, and they do decide that they're not going to get along and to protect this, is there, you know, you mentioned different, uh, vested period, but when you're two founders owning 50, 50, uh, what does that look like? Do you put in shotgun clauses? Do you put in opportunities that will ensure that the ownership of the other company can take over or make someone a silent partner? What kind of options are there for, for, uh, founders? Yeah. So I think it, you know, a lot of it depends on, on timing, but I think there's two things, obviously you have the, you, you want founders to vest their, their shares as well over you know, a certain period of time. And a lot of founders these days are actually going longer vesting periods saying, I want to you know, show that I'm committed to this company for five or six years rather than the, the three or four that standard. So I'm actually seeing that a fair amount where the founding team has longer vesting, but then 
they're doing shorter vesting for employees. So you're getting your shares every, you know, year rather than a four year period, right. With how the, the employment market's going. So having the ability to automatically claw back those shares is super important. The other thing that, you know, we do, I do a lot of the time um, with founder vesting is that if they do leave before they're vested, um, they lose the voting rights. And so what that effectively does is they get the economic value um, from the time that they put into the company, but they don't have the ability to hold up, um, you know, any of the decisions that need to be made. So they lose, you know, any rights to a board seat, they, any, they lose any rights to, you know, shareholder voting with the exception of, you know, certain things that can, you know, negatively affect the value of their shares, right? So you can't go and, you know, do a share split that makes their shares worth, you know, 10% of what they were just to kind of get rid of them. Things like that is the, the best way to do it. But to, they've added value regardless for a certain amount of time. And so they should have the ability to do that. And then the only other thing you can do is have the right to purchase it, right? Good lever, bad lever clauses, depending on how they exited. And that would then determine the value um, that they would receive for, for those shares. No, that's great. And when you when you do set up these vesting periods, is it uh, how is that structured to ensure that you know there's two co-founders, they've got five to six years that they're going to earn out? Is this earning out on new shares based on hitting targets, or is this vesting just in general that the corporation owns, let's just say, a hundred percent at this point? Uh, the founders only own twenty percent, and you're letting them. Uh, vest and grow into owning 50% going to take them six years to do this, but that pool is being locked in just like an ESOP plan. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah. So there's, there's multiple different ways to structure it. And I guess it depends on the the country that you're, you know, incorporated in and, you know, I've done these around the world. So in some, you know, jurisdictions, they don't understand kind of the treasury shares where can be issued over time. But the standard is, is that new shares are, you know, they, they sit as part of, you know, a founder pool or similar to the ESOP where they're locked in and they're issued at, you know, various intervals and, and set pricing. Um, and those are given out over time. And if the other way to do it is just a reverse vesting where the founders have a hundred percent of those shares but if they are to leave at a specific within their vesting period, that they agree to sell back the, the shares at you know that specific point in time. Um, one is kind of obviously more favorable to the founders, and one is more favorable um, to the company and the other stakeholders. And so it kind of depends on how they set it up at the beginning. But I think either works at the end of the day. Um, if a founder is leaving, they're gonna you know there's ways that they can be clawed back or they just are not given those shares over, over time. So it's, you know, effective in both ways. And with these shares that, uh, that do come back in the business or the business owns, how much of this can be affected by um, a VC coming in later on and making investments to change up uh, the way the terms are structured? Does that affect those shares that are in a treasury or that they are, uh, uh, being set aside for the founder's shares or take it even further and say that uh, they're part of the board and they decide to out that CEO later on. And this comes up all the time. It's this fear of founders that 
they're going to raise funds and be outed. And we'll talk to that in a second. But in this process, does that affect any of that control? Well, I mean, with with all of these relationships, you're you I, you look at it like uh, you know any a long term ten year relationship minimum, right? And then so you've got to do a lot of stuff up front. So, I mean, when you're an investor, they're going to obviously see how that's structured and and come in, and it shouldn't. Um, you know, a lot of investors will make founders when they come in revest their shares. Right. So you see it, you know, seed people are making them do, you know, three, four years. And then I'll see at Series A where they come in and say, okay, you take our money and you've got to revest from Series A. And then usually from there that you don't see it kind of much after that. Um, So, yes, they can come in and, you know, dictate those terms. Most um, most of the time you don't see anything until something starts going going wrong. But the the most common one is to have the shares revested at at various kind of points in in time and usually that's kind of up to series a i haven't seen it in any of the later stage stuff that i've you know invested in or worked on um lately but you know most of the time up to series a you're seeing that vesting and um you know on the second point the biggest thing is you're getting into a relationship with the investor for you know let's call it 7 to 12 years right and Um, You have to make sure you know who you're doing business with and um, due diligence works both sides, right? All investors are going to come in and do due diligence on the founders and the founders should do due diligence on their investors and know who they're working with. And just knowing the firm isn't, you know, enough anymore, know the partner, know who they've worked with, their style. Um, We as investors do that on the founders. We do background checks. And so it, it should go both ways. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, I was uh, on a podcast a a few weeks ago and it was around uh, an investment that you made that uh, you weren't happy about. And I'm sure they had different terms for it, but that's how I'm staging it. And uh, one of them was my, my feedback was that make sure that if you're going in on an investment, uh, investigate the investment, uh, the people that you're investing with, uh, because sometimes, uh, you know, they might not be on the right board as well, and they might not be on the right line that you're going at. So these things can be a uh, cause and effect uh, later on. No, absolutely. I think it's, like I said, the most important thing in all, in all of this is the relationship. So it's, you know, you all have to work together and it takes, you know, everybody kind of moving in the same direction. As soon as someone's not moving in the same direction, there's an issue. And so hopefully, you know, everybody's kind of, you know, professional enough to figure that out, but more often than not, it's not the market that kills comp- these companies. It's, the company kills itself. And so that's my biggest advice to all the founders. It's, you know, you've got to do homework on everybody that you're, you're getting into kind of conversations with. And, 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 and it always isn't going to go right. You know, there's going to be times where things go wrong or people, you know, have a change of heart or you missed something or, you know, whatever it may be. And so then it's, you know, just being kind of, clear, open, and honest about it and mistakes happen. And it's just, as long as if you have those strong relationships, when something does go wrong, you find out very quickly, you know, who's there and they're going to find a way to help you get out of it. So. Agreed. Now, if um, you you take a, I guess, a little bit of a step back and we talk a little bit more about what we chatted to on the ESOP side, uh, when is a good time to build this in and when should you allocate it? And should it be uh, when you do allocate the ESOP side, should that be uh, post your first money in, second money? 
Uh, and should it be ownership shares that are being reduced versus um, or founder shares versus the, the rest of the uh, of the investors? How do you kind of stage that and what's the best way to allocate that so that you get the best outcome? So the best time to do it is as early as possible. And there's two reasons for that. One is there's, you know, no restructuring that needs to be done. It's clean and, you know, easy at the beginning. But what it also does is it shows your really early investors as a founder that you know, you know, what's expected of you, right? And um, I think important thing for everybody to kind of see is, you know, understand is what a venture type investor what their business model is, what angel investors' business models are, what you know different type of capital looks for. But whenever kind of I look, that's why I a lot of the time prefer seed over kind of pre-seed because I know I get to see a little bit more, you know, these these subtle things that you know show how much a founder is thinking, how much you know they know about running a business. Is this you know something that they um, have thought about. And if I go in earlier, at least with, in my experience, I end up doing a lot more of that heavy lifting because, and I don't get to diligence the founders the same, but I love when a founder comes to me and says, Hey, you know, Chad, I know, you know, this is the ESOP. It's already done. This is what we're going to do. And this is how we're thinking about it over a longer term period. Right. Like I've seen several really good companies that had built 15% into their ESOP and it was never diluted, right? It was always 15, regardless of, you know, the company was worth a billion dollars and that's quite rare. But if you look at, and that company is in the Middle East, it's called Kareem and they were bought by Uber for $3 billion. And the, the people that have come out and started companies out of being able to do that, it's had a massive ecosystem effect but they only got that right. And they were only able to do that because they did it before they brought on a lot of capital. And so um, ESOP generally in the beginning always comes from founder shares, right? Um, your first equity investors will always make sure that that's done as part of, you know, the first shares coming in. Um, you can grow it over time. And, you know, we've done that a lot kind of, you know, post series A, um, especially if, uh, if the founders take an early dilution hit for some reason. So if, if they take, you know, a, a big hit in Val at one of the fundraising events, it's one tool that I, we've used to kind of re-incentivize them um, at a little bit later stage, gives them some more shares um, or let them, you know, do these things. And um, But always founder shares at the beginning. And then I've, there's top-ups that, you know, have been agreed on. Um, that are kind of pro rata later stage for for certain reasons or certain hires, et cetera. Brilliant. Uh, okay, so now you've got these, you've got everything nicely structured. You've got ESOP, you've got founder shares. Uh, what do you look for um, when it comes to putting a board together? When do you recommend a board or advisors or observers? Where do you see that tying in? And with those, can you give us an idea of what that structure looks like? Why do I have to have a board? When should I have a board? And yep. should I pay them? Should I give them shares? What do yep. you recommend again on this side? And not just board, but advisors, observers, all of those uh, people that are helping you build this company. So 
I guess the distinction to make is the the two differences between the two types of boards, right? So board of directors is the people that actually make the the decisions of the the company. And usually we're seeing that um, at the first equity financing. And what that usually is, is the first VC that comes in um, generally wants to take a board seat to watch over their money. And so usually what that is, if that's at seed stage, you'll see it, let's call it two founders and, you know, an investor. Um, The advisory board we're seeing, I love a really good early advisory board and I like the advisory board to rotate over time and be the advisors that you require at certain stages, right? Because there's a very big difference in your advisory board at, you know, day one versus when you're going through the IPO process. And so what I like to do is those advisors, they have no decision-making, but they're generally very influential and very helpful. And so, you know, someone who's been through an IPO process may be a better time for them to come is after, you know, when you're going for that versus on, on day one. And so I like the advisory board to be, um, as fluid as possible. And, you know, you can switch people in and out and, um, that should always come day one. You should founders, whether they're solo or not, need people to support them and to help them. And so advisory board adds a lot of value from day one. Board of directors is kind of when you bring, take money from someone else, you have to be accountable for that money. And um, so as soon as you take outside capital, um, usually is when you end up with a board. I don't like really big, heavy boards at the beginning because I think it takes the founders away from executing at speed. And at the end of the day, as early stage investors, we're believing in their vision and we have to let them get um, to the stage where they're a company. And then, you know, every founder at Series A, they say their role switches from, you know, it's, it switches to board meetings, fundraising, and I guess still steering the bigger vision, but they become less operational. So there is a time um, when that happens. In terms of compensation, um, I think the you know everybody wants to give away shares to um, these these places. Your equity at the day one is the most expensive commodity that you have, and you know so founders need to understand that and use that you know appropriately. And I always look down down the road and. I've seen sometimes where, you know, I get into a company early and an advisor will have, you know, 5% and I'm like, okay, this is crazy. Like, what did this person do? But it's simply because they didn't understand it and, you know, they did what they had to do at that time. So I think small amount of equity for advisors is, is good. I think, you know, again, it should be vested to make sure they actually, you know, sign up to come to their meetings and do what they said they were going to do, actually add value. And then I also like to have, you know, in certain situations, a a call option to buy it at a certain valuation, right? So if, um, or at least a portion of it, so that you're again, considering that as part of your ESOP. So a good example would be, okay, Chad's going to come and, you know, advise this company for the first year. And for that, he wants, you know, half a percent of the company at the beginning but if the company raises at you know a hundred million dollar valuation, Chad agrees to sell twenty five percent of that back to the company at that time at that value. So what that does is it gives the 
for me, I've got the value for as an advisor, I came in, I added value, I created equity value, shareholder value. For the company, they have the flexibility to, you know, recycle my equity and give it to that new advisor. Um, they're not forcing me to sell it all. So I still get to see it through to the end, but they're, you know, have a bit of flexibility. So if you can pay cash, pay cash, because again, that early stage equity is the most expensive you're going to give away, but also, you know, di over diluting yourselves, you know, to give away that or to be able to pay for that advisor may not make sense. Um, Later down the road, when you take on board of directors, I generally like the board, um, depending on to have less shares. Um, and and that's, you know, you're going to have your investor representatives. And so they already are looking out for their own, their, their selves. Um, if you have an independent board member, they should have no shares to make them actually truly independent. Um, and then I'm not seeing, you know, Till later stage, um, you know, board fees being paid. But whenever you're kind of giving out equity, you got to be smart with it, right? It's the best incentive for employees, advisors, etc. But it's also the most expensive um, thing you can get away, give away. But I always tell founders, don't be too precious with it because you know, a small having less of something really huge is better than having you know owning a hundred percent of nothing. Um, but if you make those, you know, mistakes early, then it's hard to claw back over time and, you know, you, you have less flexibility. So it's more about being flexible in the structure rather than, you know, just hoarding, um, a hundred percent of the shares. I love it. And there's a, there was a good nugget there that, uh, well, the all great nuggets that you just shared, but the one part that I liked was, um, being able to, uh, having that, um, advisor sell. A percentage of their, um, I guess, will be classified as ESOP, but the advisory role yeah. shares that that goes into there, so it does force a sell, so that that actually puts the value back into the company and allows yeah. for them to not eat up their equity when they are going on to that larger raise. Even though it's a small portion, I still think that uh, that's a great uh, a great nugget to add into the the documentation. Yeah, and I think a lot of founders, you know, the secondary market is one of the the most useful tools that they can use, right? Because like I said, there's certain people are helpful to the business at certain pieces of the life cycle, right? So your angel investors, the ones, and angel investors can come across every stage. I mean, we're seeing an angel investing, you know, you're seeing celebrities go in at pre-IPO, that's still angel investing. You're seeing people go day one back of a napkin in a coffee shop, you know, being the first investor. I mean, that goes across the entire sphere. Um, but I think what founders really need to understand is the secondary market is their absolute best friend, right? And um, what I mean by that is different people are going to be helpful to the business at different stages. And at certain points, it's better. You only have 100% of the shares. And so at certain points, it's actually better to, you know, get rid of certain people have them have a liquidity event, say, thank you very much. You got us from, you know, zero to one. We now need our shares to go from one to two. And using that secondary market is super important. And it's, it's great for everybody, right? It's great for your advisors because one, they get to take some money off the table. 
The company gets to recycle those shares and reuse them for new advisors, et cetera. It's great for employees, you know, as the value of the company grows, it's great to get rid of, you know, early investors, or maybe you have, you know, a busy cap table and want to clean it up. Also, existing investors may look at it and say, okay, I need, you know, more of this company to return my fund. And so they may want to buy up shares. And so I think founders, if they really look at the secondary market, it's something that a lot more could do a lot better job of, of using um, to, you know, better benefit both the company and the stakeholders at the various different points in time. I love it. And that's a, that's a really great point. And you see that a lot happening in these companies that are called them unicorns or rocket ships that a yep. lot of that secondary market is really jumping in and second and third markets. There's probably 10 markets jumping in. Everybody's trying to pull a piece <laughs> of that company before it hits that stage. So uh, where then it becomes a billion dollar company versus 400 million and whatnot. So there is a lot of uh, change there and, and they are hunting down the people that originally were in there trying to figure out how they can access uh, and, and buy from those early stage um, investors or employees that are yeah. no longer in the company. So there is a, a really huge value there that's uh, certainly being picked at in the market. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's something super interesting. Um, I mean, I, I in emerging markets, I still use it as a business model, right? Because the exits are, you know, IPO market isn't there and this, the exits aren't there. So, you know, if I go into a company at, um, you know, pre-seed or really early on comfortable selling at least some of the shares at, you know, series A, series B, because um, then I have realized some gains, right? I've realized taking a profit and then I, you know, get to sleep better at night. And I do this as a, you know, full-time business. So I always have to be, you know, having liquidity. And then you've seen some, like you said, there's, you know, some of the pre-IPO unicorns, there's some crazy stuff that I see in this market. And some of them are even saying, okay, I'm going to sell you my shares, but I'm going to take, we're going to put it into an SPV and I'm going to keep the carry. Right. So you'll see them taking the 20% performance fee just to sell their shares into um, that side. But, you know, I think if you look at some early stage investors that have done it well, like, um, you know, Chris Haka made himself a billionaire um off of you know one of the best kind of early stage angels vcs he made himself a, a billionaire off of doing secondaries right because he went you know in all his winners and set up spvs and bought he knew everybody in the companies and you know had the ability to go raise the capital and i think it's the secondary market if you're smart it's the best place one of the best places to be in as an angel investor it's a great spot to operate as well because you know, if you, you don't have the restrictions of a fund. And so if you see something that you like, you just go and, you know, you go and do it. The hard thing at those kind of later stage ones, I think we're going to see some interesting stuff in the market is, you know, how, how they're priced. Is it, you know, a discount to their current, their last valuation? Is it a premium? How do you do any of that? How do you structure it? I think that's the hardest, you know, part that, that people get, but I think until there's, you know, some price discovery in the secondary market, then it's still going to be a very lucrative business. For sure. Well, that was uh, amazing. Super informative. I probably could ask another hundred questions, but we're going to have to kind of move ourselves on a little bit here. So uh, thank you for all of that. The, the, next, the next question I'm going to throw at you is 
Just a quick story that might come to mind as you've been investing over the last few years. Have you come across any real um, exciting, heartfelt kind of moment where you thought this company isn't going to be able to pull this off and they just somehow made it happen and they've taken off or they're doing well, or maybe they didn't do so well, but you thought they were going to just one of those real, what it takes to be an entrepreneur and, and just kind of blows your mind. And you're like, wow, I got to share this story. I think every single company has, um, you know, they're, they're all roller coasters all the time. There's no straight line to the top. Even, you know, you see some of the big ones um, and there, it's not a, you know, easy road. I think that's the one thing all entrepreneurs, at least that go, that have done well, or that I've, the one trait that they all have is they all believe, you know, one in themselves to a level that is extremely high. They're super self-confident that they have the ability to execute and, but it's, it's never a straight line. And the way that I look at it is I'm, I end up being that phone call, whether usually when things are kind of going bad as well, right? Because it's okay. Let's call Chad before we call the lawyers. Um, so, you know, I've seen, a lot of times around fundraising rounds where it's, you know, they may not be having any traction and it's, you know, one conversation changes, changes everything. And it, it again, it, it's all about putting the right people around you. So I have one of my companies, I'm up, you know, 85 or 90 times on this company's company. It was one of the first ones that, that I did, but you know, their, their series B was taking longer um, just to put together COVID, whatever, they're raising 50 plus million dollars. And, you know, there was times where they were like, okay, you know, and they couldn't go to a normal bank to get that credit. So what did they do? They, this is a credit to the founder that, okay, he put the right people around. He called, one of the founders, you know, wired $6 million to to get them bridged into the next thing. But I, there was some, you know, sweating going on behind the scenes saying, okay, what if we can't, you know, make it to this round? And this is a company that's very successful, right? So what that shows is that even in success, there's moments where, you know, you just have to find a way. And um, other companies at the early stage where, you know, it only takes one person to, to change things good or bad. I've been in some rounds where we're like, okay, I don't know if this deal's going to just hundred percent fall through and this isn't going to be put together and then one investor falls and then it's just, you know, the momentum builds and, you know, it ends up being oversubscribed in the next three days. So like, it's just, it's funny how human nature works. And I think all of the founders that I've, you know, worked with always, you know, no matter they were good or bad, it doesn't matter. I mean, all the ones we choose to work with, I think we think are good. Um, but life happens and it just really is about how they, how they manage that situation. I like it. Nope. That's a, that's a great, uh, great story. Uh, okay. So rapid fire questions. Let's do it. All right. What's your favorite part of investing? Um, I, I love, well, obviously working with the founders, right. I'm, it's they're the most brilliant people in the world they're taking risks that people aren't willing to take they're trying to build things bigger than anybody else is trying to build and um they also are with some of the hardest working most genuine people that you get to deal with and so for me that's that's 100 percent the um my favorite thing and the the sole reason that i do this the 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 rewards 
it's a high risk, high reward business. And so like, you know, okay, if things go really well, we're going to all make a bunch of money, but there's a lot of times where it just goes to zero. And so you don't, I always say you don't ever really do venture or building these things for the money. You're doing it for like the bigger purpose of, you know, building something interesting or being a part of something a little bit bigger. Um, so I love the founders first and foremost, the thing that, you know, gets me super excited is actually getting into a deal when they're fundraising, when I'm doing fundraising with the syndicate, right. When I've, you know, diligence the company and said, okay, I want to go do this and, you know, go to put it together. I mean, I, I love the adrenaline rush that comes with, with that side. And, um, that's the best part. Okay. How many companies do you invest in per year? Uh, I have 17 portfolio companies. Um, most of those I'd say, so in the first two years of doing things, I was, you know, a bit more concentrated, a bit more hands-on. So I think I did, um, you know, five or six. And then the last, I think I've done seven this year so far. So the idea is, is that I will do, um, 12 to 20 companies a year um, 30 companies in a two year period to try and build that, that portfolio. Awesome. Any specific verticals? All FinTech, um, or FinTech adjacent. So I have a quite a wide remit there, but most of the stuff that I've done is in kind of three areas. One is kind of the open banking API infrastructure play. Um, the second one is capital markets and how they're being, you know, affected. So, um, and that includes, you know, blockchain, digital assets, you know, traditional trading infrastructure, um, wide remit there. Then I've done, I guess, alternative lending. I like that space. So buy now, pay later. I've done an education platform in Indonesia, um, doing a couple trade finance, SME plays, and then um, the other one, the last kind of, I guess there's a fourth vertical that I love is kind of how the next generation are getting involved in, you know, financial advice. So I've done a company in the Middle East called Baraka, which is going to be, you know, Robin Hood of the built from there, but for the world. And I've done a couple other, you know, social platforms that do, you know, embedded finance, right? So now you can pay through. Um, pay on Instagram or, you know, transact through these different platforms. And this one that I did is, you know, based in LA and it's for mentors. So, you know, you could jump on and mentor startups and they can pay you, you know, through the platform, et cetera. And so it's, uh, and it, it's not a pure FinTech, but they figure out how people get paid, how people have new credit scores and things like that. And um, I've been quite successful in the embedded space companies that don't look like fintech but use that vertical and so that that's where i'm spending all of my time um very sector focused um but you know investing across the world awesome do you lead rounds i do not lead rounds i love the founders too much for that um and i again i'm super founder focused i always you know end up being their one of their closest advisors. And so I almost feel like it's a conflict of interest if I lead rounds. The second thing is, is I, you know, operate a syndicate. And so the, we don't know how much we're going to invest in each deal until we go and do it. And so my sweet spot is being super founder friendly, working really closely with strong VCs that do lead rounds, 
And obviously I can jump in and help, but what ends up happening in most of the deals is the founders are calling me saying, you know, what does this term actually mean? And so I end up being there. So I'm always founder focused. Don't lead rounds. Um, can co-lead if, you know, there needs to be some reason to do it, but using the syndicate model, um, we tend to not be in a position to, to do that. Okay. Uh, do you take board seats and do you have preferred terms that you like if it's pref share, safes, all of that? Um, I don't take a board seat unless I'm asked to. Um, obviously, if a founder asks me to um, do that, I will look at doing it. Um, I, I tend to be more the advisory board, right? I'm a, you know, usually the founders, one of their closest advisors. And it's usually better for me um, and for the founder for me not to be on the board because obviously when you sit on the board, you have a fiduciary obligation to the to the shareholders as a whole. And so I can't always back the founders if they are going against kind of that obligation. And I am a you know founder first. And so I tend to be a better advisory board member or that you know 3M phone call rather than a, a board of directors. And then in terms of you know um, terms that I like to see, I think you know the, the the space has gotten where it's so standardized now that the standard terms are there and set, and there's not a really strong reason to go outside of them unless there's something in diligence that came up that you know needs to change it and so um i also think you know when you're early stage investing so i like the safe versus convertible notes um i like especially at seed stage and you know this changes later on but at seed stage i think there's you know no reason for um you know a debt instrument in the sense that you weren't approaching the company to provide them a loan. You are approaching them to get equity at, at a certain stage. And so I'll use a safe. I use a side letter on a safe too. I'm not going to lie. Like I like my information rights. The safes do miss a few of those things. I like information rights. I like, um, you know, pro rata rights, being able to continue to invest at the later stages. I mean, um, I like, you know, making sure that those things are there. And so I'll use a side safe and a side letter at those early stages. Um, and then just usually fairly standard terms. I find as anytime you're changing things up from what's going on into the industry is usually a red flag either way. Like, you know, either the, if the terms are too onerous, you're kind of wondering what the VC or the investors trying to, you know, do, or if they're too light, it's like, okay, what, what's going on here. But it, it, those kind of the sways with how the market's going, right? I, the, there's so much money in the market right now. We're seeing, you know, um, safes with no cap, no discount, and just, you know, most favored nation to get into companies. And I used to, I would have 12 months ago, I would have never invested in a, in a no cap safe, but now you're kind of, if you want into some of these hot deals and some of these companies, you kind of just go with the the flow, but, Obviously, the standard documents are there for a reason. Um, most countries have adopted a standard set, whether it's, you know, in the VC associations, angel groups have their standard stuff. And so I, even though I'm a lawyer, I tend to stick to the standard stuff unless I find something, you know, in diligence that needs to have um, additional, you know, safeties or, you know, protection put in. So I love it. Okay. Um, 
We're going to shift quickly to some personal questions. We're almost there. We're right at the end. All right. So first question, what do you think is the secret sauce to investing? Um, so obviously just picking the people. I think if you're doing angel investing, it's, it all comes down to the people and it's not just the founders. It's everybody that they have around them. Are they able to recruit both advisors, team, and in investors. Um, I think the other thing when you're investing, it's, and this is something I've learned a lot over the last two years is, is kind of the cadence and the amount that you learn um, through the investment process. You know, I see a lot of new investors come in and they want to, you know, oh, I just, you know, had an, I had some money left over. I didn't go on vacation this year. I want to angel invest. And they come and just put it all down on the table up front. I've seen a really, you know, interesting um, learning for me was, you know, spreading things out over time. Um, I think for early, you know, new investors saying no more often is, you know, I, there's very few companies that, you know, I've said no to that down the road I've wanted to invest in and haven't been able to get in, into, right? Most of the time, I'm still able to find a way in. If I, if I passed on something for some reason and said no, I usually find a way in. So saying no more often is something, but um, doing some due diligence, you're backing the people, trust your gut on, you know, a lot of the stuff. If something doesn't seem right, ask a lot of questions and there's no, uh, when, whenever you're investing, there's no bad questions. Right. So okay, those are no, kind of my good. secrets, not really secrets, but that's kind of what I use. Yeah. No, that works. Uh, okay. Next. Um, what is your favorite sports team? The Calgary flames. Nice. Nice. All yeah, right. Even though even I, I'm not going to say anything, but we can't speak hockey today. It's a, we're all in, and I do live in Toronto at the moment. And so, you know, we're in a state of mourning here today. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. Montreal seems like they got uh, somehow found a leg to make it work. So I'm not sure what Toronto's problem is, but we'll, uh, we'll jump into the next question. Yeah. Uh, so what is your favorite movie and what character would you play in the movie? Oh gosh, my favorite movie. I watch. I watch a lot. I've kind of watched a lot of movies over uh, a lot of time. I don't really have a favorite movie. There's been a lot, and um, we've kind of. I guess everybody through COVID um, has done the whole Netflix thing. And my my wife and I are no different. We don't really watch TV, but we do enjoy uh, a good movie. So I I don't know. I can't pick a favorite, and I don't know who I would play if I had to act. So. All right, you'll be the first one that's never picked a movie. You don't have okay. one Star Wars something? No, 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 no Star Wars. Well, I um, I don't know. There's there's too many. There's too many. I watch a new one too too often, and I kind of just I don't look back. Just keep going on the new one. So probably the last one that I watched, and I can't even remember what that was. <laughs> okay, awesome, awesome. Uh, all right, last question. What's your superpower? Gosh, that's a, that's a good question. I think for me, I think I wish it was something more interesting, but um, I just have the ability to kind of do what it takes for the people that I'm, you know, doing business with and working with, right? Like when founders 
Um, for me, it's super important, and I'm taking this in the investing context, I guess. Um, it's super important that when I pick a company to go with that I that I'm with them the whole time, right? I'm never gonna kind of, you know, abandon that. And so um, I guess I have a stomach for the ups and the downs. And um, yeah, I can some say it's a bad thing, but you know, when things are going bad, I it's okay. I figure try and figure a way out of it and um, you know, there for the people that I that I work with. Um, because I think you know, the most important thing that we have are those kind of relationships. And so, um, I guess that's a decent superpower. I wish it was like seeing into the future. And so <laughs> I wish I had that so that we could, uh, pick those companies doing what's next now or start them now, or, you know, I wish I had, you know, hindsight to put more money into Bitcoin or things like that. When five, six years ago, when we, when we were all looking at it, but um, I wish that was the superpower, but we're, I guess as investors, we're all trying to, uh, to have that as our superpower. So if, if it's any of my LPs, um, out there, listen to this, my superpower is seeing into the future and we're investing in that today. So <laughs> I love it. Well, I think, uh, it sounds like just from everything we've talked about, I think one of your other superpowers might be, uh, relationships. Sounds like, uh, you value those. And I think that makes a big difference. So that's a, a pretty big uh, superpower too. I appreciate that. Well, I want to say, Chad, thank you very much for all your time today. Uh, fantastic. I always say I don't take notes, but it seems to be the moniker of it. I'm, <laughs> I'm a writer. I got to take this stuff down, but I, I think that uh, fantastic. You shared a lot of great, great, great insights and information. And I'm sure the community is going to learn from that. And again, thank you. And the way we like to kind of end our shows is that we like to give you the last word. So any comment you want to say to the investors or to the startups, um, feel free to take over. But again, thanks for your time today. No, I appreciate you having me. So um, for any startups, I mean, you can find me on uh, on LinkedIn or, or on my website. It's foxventures.io. Um, if you're angel investor, family office, um, institutional LP, you can invest with me. I'm on, I have a syndicate on angel list or uh, we do, you know, have some small committed capital vehicles that we do. Um, so feel free to reach out, um, and let's, uh, let's build some great fintechs all together. I love it. Perfect. Again, Chad, thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. Okay, that was fantastic. So many great things there. I think that startups are really going to like and understand more about how to set your structure up of your company, all these things that really do make a big difference earlier on, uh, from vesting, ESOP, uh, boards, how to pay them, all that great stuff. Check it out. Like us, share, uh, find us on all the platforms. But thank you very much for your time, everybody.